All right. Good morning, everyone. I think this is probably going to be our crowd today. We're, we're, the, we're the tough ones. We're the tough ones. <laughs> Kids these days, you know. Boy, when I had to go to school back in the day. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, before we pray, I will say this. The funny thing is, when I was in college in Madison, uh, there is one giant hill right in the middle of campus called Bascom Hill. And Bascom Hall, with the big statue of Abraham Lincoln, sits at the very top of Bascom Hill. And no matter where you are on campus, if you're going to another building, you have to walk up Bascom Hill. So it really is uphill both ways, because you have to go up the hill no matter where you're going. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, mercifully hear our prayers, and having set us free from the bonds of our sins, deliver us from every evil. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Very good. The verse of the week is from Lamentations. 340. Let's speak this together. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. All right. What does it mean to search out and to examine? These go together. Uh, yes, it is. Not only our life, though, and I'll get to that in just a second. But the, vo the specific vocabulary of searching out and examining, it should sound like something that is very familiar to you. Search out. Before confession, examine yourself. Yes, exactly. Uh, like before confession, you ex examine yourself. Uh, so you examine yourself, and like in the hymnal, um, there's that uh, little rubric. The rubrics are the little red words, red for rubric. That's the directions that tell you what to do. And in Confession and Absolution, there's the rubric that says a brief period of silence for meditation and examination and reflection. That's... Uh, so that's all kind of this same thing. Search out and examine. So it ties in with confession and the idea that you search yourself for the sins that you can give up and confess. Um, and you're examining our ways. And this is really important. And this is why I'm getting back to what you said, Jim. You are examining your life, but Specifically, you're examine, searching out and examining your ways, which is your conduct. 
what you do and how you live. So it isn't just the fact that you are alive and have a pulse, but including everything that is a part of your life, how you live your life, what you say, what you do, how you act, uh, all of that. And I think that this is so great because you contrast your ways with the way. There is only one way, but man has many ways. Do you see that? So it doesn't only mean just the things that you do, but conduct of life, meaning everything that surrounds your life, the way that you live, the path that you trod through life. So you search out and examine your ways because they are contrary to the way. If you have a way, if you can say, well, I'll do it my way. <laughs> yeah. If you can say that, you already need to come to confession. Because if you're saying, I want to do it my way, you've made a way that isn't the way. There's only one. So any other thing is the wrong way. Yes? Uh, do you suppose that that uh, pertains to more patterns and style rather than specific acts? Patterns and, and style? style of, of our conduct, our life? Really? Well, sure. Patterns and, and conduct. Theme rather than, uh, I said something bad to Bruce yesterday. <laughs> sure. Uh, so is it, a, is it a difference between conduct or patterns of behavior and specific deeds? Yes. Well, I'll answer your question with a question. Does it have to be different? Does, do, you have, do you have to choose one of those things? Does it have to be either or? The specifics are probably just verses in the chapter style. Yeah, so I would say that the, the specifics fall under the overarching umbrella of the more general patterns of behavior. So you have a, a pattern of behavior that is sort of dictated to you, and that includes specific things that you do, like love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. These are specific things in the overarching category of the way. Now there's also the overarching category of our ways, which includes all of the specific things that you do as you walk your own way that are contrary to the way. Does that make sense? So it doesn't have to be an either or, it can be both and. So ultimately, you know, is it this or is it that? My answer is yes. It's both. Yeah, yes, it's both. Um, that's a good question. Okay, now, oh my goodness. Turn back. Oh, this is the last little bit and turn back to the Lord. Uh, there is a very specific word in the Christian vocabulary that pertains to the idea of turning back. Do you know what it is? It's okay if you don't, this is just, we have talked about it in the catechumenate, so if you've been in the catechumenate, or you've been watching it, or you've gone through it before, this is something that I have mentioned before there. That's your hint. 
It is. It is. Repentance. The Greek word that we translate as repentance, it means more literally turning back, having a change of face. So you're going on this way and you metanoia, you repent, you make a, a change. And so the idea of repentance is not only feeling sorry for and then saying, well, uh, I'll come and you know, confess my sins and then after that I'll do it again, probably. Repentance is the idea that you're turning away from it. You turn your back to whatever that was and you walk a different way. And the way that you walk now is to the Lord because you're going away from this and you're going to this. Do you see this? Turning back to the Lord. Uh, your, your face was here and now it's here. You've done an about face and you're walking completely the opposite direction. Is that an about face? That's Okay, I, I just realized I had people here who actually would know better than I and I thought, ooh, I don't want to make a fool of myself. So... Okay, uh, very good. Let's speak this together again. Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Good. Which are these sins we know and feel in our hearts? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Yes, so this is the third part of uh, the catech small catechism on confession and absolution. You know that when you go to the pastor, uh, that's part two, which we didn't do last week because we didn't have Bible class. But um, uh, before the Lord, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins we know and feel in our hearts. Which are those sins? Well, how do you know which sins you should confess? And ultimately, uh, this, this kind of goes for confessing generally before the Lord as well. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments, which honestly is this. Search out and examine. How, uh, by what, what standard do you use when you are searching out and examining yourself? The Ten Commandments, which we would also call... What's the common... Come on, Lutherans. The law, yeah. All right, that was harder than it should have been. The law. So the law is the thing that you use as your measure. So how, well, let's see. What, what sins should I confess? Let's compare myself with the law, and we'll see what the law tells me about myself and where I come up wanting uh, that I will confess. So uh, this is just general, you know, this is not an exhaustive list, but really you have here all of your stations, all of your vocations, every thought and your word and, and your deeds, and even the things that, uh, that you don't say or don't think or don't do that you, that you should have. Uh, 
so in any, in any place when you've been negligent or thoughtless or you've spoken a word and hurt someone, so if you examine your life according to this standard, you will never be able to walk away from it and say, hey, I, I don't have anything to confess. I'm pretty good. Uh, right? Because <laughs> the only answer the only answers that you can ever give to this, these questions, hey, are you a father, mother, son, daughter? Have you, have you hurt someone by your words? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, lazy? Bah, 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 bah. The only things that you can say are, yes. You can say maybe, perhaps, or you can say, I don't know. But really, that's, that's it. And, and maybe is kind of, I think, a gray area answer. It's really yes or I don't know. And in either case, then you have something to confess. But you can never say no. You can never walk away saying, well, no, I, I didn't ever hurt somebody by my words or deeds. So it's always ever, you, you know, you know you're walking away from this having sinned, uh, but sometimes you're not aware of your sin, but that doesn't mean that you didn't sin. Yes? <clears throat> There's an anecdote, I think I remember it correctly, <clears throat> and maybe attributed to Luther, that somebody came to Luther and was confessing a whole half hour of, out of this and on, 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 like that. And after two or three confessions, finally Luther told him, he says, uh, can you condense your confession here a little bit? Yeah, that it's was... not necessary to list every sin in the scripture. That was Luther. That Just was Luther. to his father confessor Staupitz. Yeah, okay. He would go in to confess and have this, I mean, he'd just... His father confessor would just be sitting there forever and then he'd walk out and then run back in going, oh no, I forgot this and this, we have to do this again so I can say everything. And uh, so in the Lutheran church, then you, if you read the, the Augsburg Confession, one of the things is that we don't require the enumeration of sins and one, actually two really good reasons uh, the, for not doing that. The first is uh, who can discern all of his errors as the psalmist. You're going to sin and then you're not going to remember the specifics of your sin unless you walk around with a sin journal where every time you come, oh, let me quick write this one down for confession, otherwise I'm going to forget. You know, keep a tally every day of all your things. The other reason is because you also sin without realizing that you've sinned. Sometimes you speak a word and you don't exactly know how that word is going to affect someone and maybe you didn't think that the word hurt somebody, but it did and it was unknown to you. Well, now that's a sin that you've committed. If you're required to enumerate every single sin, that's a sin that is left unforgiven because you never knew about it, so you can't confess it. So the enumeration of sins is not something that the Lutheran Church requires. You can confess generally, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those, and you're confessing the fact that you have sinned and saying, I've sinned and I've sinned in this way, but I've also, I know that there are sins that I'm even unaware of, and all of those sins I, I confess to you. Okay, uh, very good. Any questions about this? Okay, children, you may go to Sunday school. Oh, yes. Also, this bathroom here off the conference room has no water either, so please don't use that. 
Okay, thanks for the reminder. I completely forgot. <laughs> okay, before we, it's, we're gonna, it's a hymn Sunday today. We've got a new hymn for the month. Before we do that, I want to share something with you because I think it's really neat and it's not in my sermon and I want you to be thinking about it. So the Old Testament reading today is from 1 Samuel. And actually, if you have your bulletin, you have your propers, you can just look at it. It's the, the Old Testament for Quinquagesima is the anointing of David as the king of Israel. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot there in that reading to talk about. Always, always more in the readings than we're able to cover. But one thing in particular hit me even just this morning as I was recording the service to put up on the podcast, something I hadn't really thought of until I was reading it. And this is why the scriptures are such beautiful things, because every time you read them, you'll find new things that you never thought of before, and then you'll kick yourself for, well, why didn't I think, why didn't I realize that before? But that's just kind of the way that they are. So, uh, somewhere in there, I don't remember exactly which verse it is, Samuel goes to Jesse and has Jesse uh, line up his boys and send his boys by Samuel so that Samuel can say yes or no, this is the one that the Lord has determined will be anointed as the new king. And it, there are three that go by. I think it's Eliab, Aminadab, and Shema, I think. The last one I... Could, could be wrong about. But there are three that are named. And then it says, so he did for seven of his sons before David. Are you starting to see maybe why this popped out at me and why I wanted to share it with you? Yes, but there's something more important than seven. If seven have already gone before, and David is the last one left, what number does that make David? Number eight. Yeah. And you remember, I've talked about this before, about the importance of the number eight. Eight is the number of the new life and the resurrection. That's why a baptismal font has eight sides. Uh, that's why, uh, well, Christ is, Christ is the eighth day He's the person of the eighth day. His return is the eighth day. So your week goes one to seven, one to seven, one to seven, one to seven, until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, it goes one to seven, eight. And then you live on the eighth day forever. So the eighth day is the day of new life. It's the day of resurrection. Baptismal font is new life, hence eight sides, because everything in the church teaches. But this is the really cool thing. In the gospel reading from Luke 18, it's Jesus' third prediction of death. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, and then also the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus addresses Jesus as Jesus is walking through Jericho. And he says, Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy on me. And then, he, and then Jesus says, what can I do for you? And he says, I'd like to be able to see, please. Uh, but the whole thing is that uh, blind Bartimaeus believes in Jesus as the son of David, which is to say, as the Messiah, the Christ. So David, as the greatest of the kings of Israel, is the eighth son then the son of David is the eighth day, the, the new life and resurrection and, uh, and hope and joy all pointing ahead to the coming Messiah. I mean, this stuff is so cool, and uh, I just wanted to share it with you because I was excited about it. That's all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, listen real closely to that today uh, during the readings because it isn't, it isn't in the sermon, but there are... Uh, so, anyway, you can't cover everything. Can I start with a question? Sure, yeah. When these, like, when Quagesima and mm -hmm. Jesima, whatever, are these only once a year, just like Pentecost? And yep. Yeah, so this is the season called pre-Lent, the Jesimas. Very often on, I think it's Transfiguration, is the last Sunday before the Jesimas begin, they will, the church will pack away the Alleluias. And then you, you already start pulling things away in preparation for Lent. And often the pyramids actually change to purple during, during Jesimatide before Lent. Now we don't do that here. Um, we could if we wanted to, but I kind of like having the green and having the distinction between um, Epiphany Tide, Jesimatide, and then Lent. And the things like the proper preface, uh, which is the, um, it is truly meet right and salutary that we should at all times. That thing that I chant <clears throat> before the Sanctus, that's the proper preface. And that changes, depend, if you, I don't know if you pay attention to that or notice it, but it actually changes during the church year to match whatever season or whatever specific feast day is being observed. So there is one for Advent, there's one for Lent, there's one for Epiphany Tide. Um, and the, one, the proper preface that is assigned for Jesimatide is still the proper preface for Epiphany. So that's why we don't change the color. But yes, they do only happen once a year, Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima. And all that, the, this is, stuff in the church isn't as complicated as it seems. Uh, and this is a prime example. It's a big word, but all it means is we're counting to Easter. So Septuagesima is, hey, 70 days until Easter. Sexagesima is 60 days till Easter. Uh, Quinquagesima is 50 days, about, give or take. About 50 days, because Lent is... 40 days, so Quinquagesima is the last Sunday before Lent. Because uh, we go from 50 to starting Lent with those 40 days. So yes, only once a year. They're, they're marking the time to Easter. Well, we did altar care one time with the and I didn't mm -hmm. do that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing when you did it, I was like, yeah, well, time flies when you're having fun, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and also, uh, 
quinquagesima is the longest of the words, and it's all on one line on the hymn board. So if you see Aubrey Bierman, give her a pat on the back because she did a real good job getting all of that to fit. The first sermon that I did as a late reader uh-huh. about 50 years ago was this Queen Bogesima Sunday. Okay, very good. I remember that yeah all it's all it really means is hey there's about 50 days until Easter that's it see nothing really is as complicated as it as it needs to be like the Kyrie and the Gloria well it's just the it's just the first line or like uh, the Sundays in Advent or the Sundays in Lent uh, Populus Zion you know all those names it's just the Latin of the first couple words of the intro it that's that's all it is. It's really nothing fancy. It is so. The next time you you see that, like when we start getting into Lent, which starts on Wednesday, by the way. So next Sunday is Invocabit Sunday, the first Sunday of Lent. So so when you come to church, look at your little look at your little proper's half sheet, and see that it says Invocabit, and then look down at the introit at the first couple words of the intro it. And you'll start learning Latin just because the church is gonna teach it to you. Cause she makes it seem like she's highfalutin and fancy, but she's not as highfalutin and fancy as she makes herself out to be. The Sundays after Easter are some of the best though, because I think it's the, it's the first Sunday after Easter or the second. I think it's the first Sunday after Easter is Quasimodo Genity, which is, yeah, just, that's the, the most fun name of the whole church here, Quasimodo Genity, hey, welcome to church, <laughs> which is why the humpback uh, was named Quasimodo, by the way, because he was found on the Sunday after Easter, so the guy named him Frollo, named him after the liturgical day. The more you know. Next time I see you on Jeopardy, I'll know where you got your answers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the hymn, the new hymn for the month is a semi-familiar hymn to you. And the reason I say semi-familiar is because the text you know, when I survey the wondrous cross, that's the hymn. I know that you know that text, and I know that you know one of those tunes. But there's two tunes, and we're learning the other one, 426. <laughs> I, I saw that. Um, and the sec- by the way, the second tune is the more traditional, the one we're learning today is the more traditional tune internationally. We'll get there in a little bit when we talk about the tune. The tune 425, which is uh, Hamburg, Hamburg is the name of the tune. That's an American tune. Uh, so when the hymn came to America, that's the one that they assigned to it, and that's why that's the tune that's the most popular and the most well-known in America, because it's the American tune. But there's another tune, which is 426, Rockingham, which is the more popular of the tunes across the world, specifically in England. So if you ever do something like, oh, you you listen to the King's College Choir, or you, or you go and you get a, like the King's College Choir collection of best hymns, or you know, one of those things. Uh, 15 or 20 hymns on, on this CD or on this 
I don't know if people buy CDs anymore on this album. Um, and when I survey the Wondrous Cross is one of them, but it'll be the different tune because it's the English choir singing the English melodies, okay? So anyway, this is one of the most popular hymns from its era, kind of the Enlightenment era of Christianity. And there are quite a number actually of, more than I realized till I started uh, making this class, hymnologists that declare that this is really one of the greatest hymns in the English language. And I think what they mean is that was written specifically in the English language, because I would contest that claim and say that really there are a lot of hymns that are kind of better than this one. It's a good hymn, but there are some that are better. But of course they are translated. This one was written in English. You can see it right here. This is what this picture is. Um, this is a, the original hymn text. Actually, this is, this is version two of the hymn text, which is the text that we now have. The, the original text was, uh, it included, the stanzas were slightly rearranged, and specifically um, stanza four here, which is omitted. That's why it has a little bracket. Um, so if you look in our hymnal, there's only four stanzas, and what's listed as the fourth stanza here is um, not the right one. Also, because it's older English, there's things that look like Fs, but they are Ss, so just don't be confused. Um, so this, is, this hymn was published in 1707 uh, by Isaac Watts. And I can guarantee you that you know at least one other Isaac Watts hymn. That is a Christmas hymn. No, it is not. I know it. <laughs> it's Joy to the World. Yeah, yeah. Joy to the World is an Isaac Watts hymn. So Isaac Watts is an English, um, an English hymn writer. He was the son of a Congregationalist minister, which was kind of a big deal. Um, the Congregationalists were, they're also referred to as dissenters, because what is the state church of England? and specifically in the year 1707. It's the Anglican Church. Remember, because Henry, uh, Henry was a naughty boy, and, uh, yes, several times was a naughty boy, and wanted to annul a marriage, and the church wouldn't let him, so he said, well, fine, I'll make my own church that'll let me do that. And that was the, that's the uncharitable story of how the Anglican Church started. Um, Anglicans would contest that, and it's really more complicated than that, but it's funny to talk about it that way, so we will. Um, so, pardon me? They're not here to defend themselves. Yeah, that's right, they're not here to defend themselves, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so they are dissenters. Uh, Isaac Watts and his, and his father, he followed in the footsteps of his father. And that means that they don't want to be a part of the Anglican Church. They want to be a part of something else. So they're Congregationalists. Congregationalists have their influences in many denominations of the United States. 
things like the Methodists, the Baptists, the, the uh, uh, non-denominationals, the disciples of Christ, this, the idea of congregationals, um, and, but to be fair, le less so the Methodists than those other ones because the Methodists have what is called an episcopy, which means they have bishops. We have the same thing, sort of. We just don't call them bishops. Uh, but you're welcome to, and when I pray for them, I do, because that's what they are. We, we just, Lutherans got af afraid of the term bishop because they thought it was too Catholic. So they said, well, we'll call him a, a president instead because we don't want a bishop. And that happened, you know, back in the 1800s. They said, oh, no, we're not going to have any more bishops because that's what they have. We're going to have presidents instead. So, yes, we do elect them, um, but they are, they function in the role of bishop. So the Methodists have an episcopacy, an, an episcopacy like that. But these other churches, if you want to know how the Congregationalists function and how they, why they're called Congregationalists, it's because they want independence. So like groups like the Puritans are Congregationalists. So there were, America really is steeped in Congregationalism because the settlers that came here were Congregationalists. They are uh, they want independence, which is why they're dissenters. They don't want to be a part of the Anglican Church because they don't want a, a governing body telling them what they can and cannot do. Uh, every church is autonomous. So how do, this is the, one of the big keys, how do they get a pastor? Pardon me? Well, oh yeah, by the bishop. In a, in a church with an episcopacy, yes the bishop assigns them and sends them, and the Lutherans function a little more autonomously because you have the ability to extend a call as a congregation, and the pastor has the ability to say no. Personally, I'm not as big a fan of that. I, that's why I like the, the uh, being sent out by the seminary, that you don't get a choice where they send you. Uh, they say, here is where you're going, and you say, thanks be to God, the, the Lord is sending me out into the field and I'll serve the people. But the Congregationalists don't do that because they're independent. They don't have any sort of governing uh, body that tells them what to do. And I know we have some people here that are former Baptists or former non-denominationals or disciples of Christ. I'm not naming names and I'm not even looking at anybody. Um, <laughs> but if the way that they get a pastor typically is they elect a pastor. So some, they'll say, well, this person is here. Sometimes they'll call another pastor. Sometimes the Baptist will do that. Well, that, I hear that Baptist church has a really good pastor. Well, let's see if he wants to come here. But they don't go through the seminary. They don't go through vetting by the church the way that we do and, and other denominations do in the same way. Um, it is a more independent form. That, that's a real oversimplification. Yes? Yeah, as I recall, as I was a Baptist, that um, they have committees, mm -hmm. and they go to different churches and listen to the, the pastor. Yes. And, and then that's how they would bring it back to the church and vote on which one they thought was Yeah, often, often there's a, like an interview uh, and like a... I'm like an audition process. So the, uh, they'll often invite 
the other pastor to come here. Well, you come here and you preach, and then we'll listen to your, how you preach, and we'll decide if, you're, if we want you here based on how you preach, things like that. But the, you know, the oversimplification is they elect somebody to be pastor. Well, he's a real good spiritual man. We'll raise him up and we'll elect him and we'll say that he's the pastor now and then that person is the pastor, um, which is not the way that we do it. You, you are not able to just decide, well, I think Bill Heitman should be the pastor, so bada-bing, bada-boom, by, uh, by our uh, declaration and by our election, he is now a pastor. Uh, we can't do that here. So that's one difference. They're independent. They don't um, have that authority. Now, in 1707, Congregationalists and Puritans, they have a very Calvinist bent. So when it comes to things like the sacraments, it, it isn't really the body and the blood. When it comes to things like how you worship, it is stripped down and bare bones because anything else might be a distraction. So we're not going to have any kind of art. We're not going to have any kind of colors. We're not, it's just drab, nothing, no sculptures, no, no symbols, no stained glass windows, nothing. You're just going to come into this bare room, and the only thing you're allowed to sing are psalms, nothing else. And uh, over time, you know, certain groups got a little less rigid, and the Congregationalists were somewhat less rigid. Um, they still focused primarily on only the Psalms, but they had some other hymns that they would sing as well. Uh, but all of the hymns had to be purely objective. It has to be saying something. This is what happened. The Lord, this is who the Lord is. Uh, so <laughs> Isaac Watts, growing up in this church body, got fed up with it because he said, these are so uninspiring. This is horrible. I mean, all the people come here and then they just uh, it's just drab and dreary and uninspiring. And what he said was to see the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of a whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips, might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. <laughs> he basically says, boy, you know, they're singing the psalms, but they sure don't look like Christians. <laughs> yeah, they're not enjoying it. Well, but you're not supposed to enjoy it. Church isn't about having fun. You don't come here to enjoy it. You come here, see... You come here to worship God. That's why you come to church. Okay. All right. But it doesn't mean we can't have fun while we do it. I mean, we don't, play, we don't have dog and pony shows in there. But we play with fire. Every now and then we light some incense. That's a hoot. We dress up in colors. We dress the altar up in colors. We tell time by color. I mean, where else do you get to do that? We get to stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down. And in some places you get to kneel. You get your cardio in on Sunday mornings too. Then you have a little supper. You get your sins forgiven. And then you get to go home. I mean, plus you get to sing, you get to sing songs. I mean, it's like... This is the best place to be. We should do it every day. 
So uh, all of this stems from how you're going to define what worship is. And from this perspective of Isaac Watts and, and the Congregationalists and others of the ilk, the Puritan side of things, worship is something that you're going to do for God. It's about my devotion to him and what I am going to do for him, and I am in awe of him because he is... Uh, it's, there, there was a Monty Python, Monty Python sketch, and it's slightly irreverent, but it really it was funny because it says exactly what I'm saying here. And it's a whole congregation that comes to church and the pastor steps up and he says, time to pray. And then they all turn to pray and he says, oh Lord, you are so big, so very, very, very big. And we are so small. And you are so great, so very, very, very great. And we are so small. And the whole prayer is just him saying, oh, you're so big and we're so small. You're so powerful. Oh, And it's kind of funny because if all that worship is, is, hey, you know what? God's really great. You better get in there and praise him. Then that's really what it is. Oh, Lord. Oh, you're so big and we're so small. Ooh. But that's not what it is. Uh, the Lord puts himself into a box and he delivers himself to you like a little present on the altar. Uh, worship is coming to receive what God offers, to receive the gifts, the Gottesdienst, the God who serves. That's why we call it divine service, because the divine comes to serve. It's a full service place. You come in here and the Lord just takes care of you. Right? So this is kind of the Congregationalist uh, mindset, which actually made this hymn rather unpopular with some of the Congregationalists and the Puritans, which we'll see in just a second. So Watts loved his father and respected his father as a nonconformist, as a dissenter uh, in this Congregationalist church, and he said, you know what, I could become an Anglican priest, but I really don't want to. I want to be a Congregationalist dissenter like my father. So he did, um, and he wrote a lot of hymns because of his belief that the way that they were singing these psalms was uninspiring. It, it didn't create any kind of a desire to, to come to church. It didn't instill a love of the faith. It just was bland and drab and boring. It, you know, the church can be artful with, with good taste. The church can be creative. Um, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI is someone who I admire quite a bit, actually, and uh, he writes a lot of really good things. And one of the things he wrote is, never trust a theologian who doesn't appreciate art and music and poetry as well. Because a theologian who can't see any beauty in art and poetry and music is certainly not going to find any beauty in theology because God really is everywhere, and where, God's, where truth is, there God is, because God is truth. So the church, t the church takes all of these different facets, and that's one reason why, you know, we don't screw around in the sanctuary. That's a, that's a very holy place. I don't behave the same way in there that I do in Bible class. I'm not going to be up there uh, telling jokes and acting glib or flippantly. Uh, everything is very important because of the confession that it makes. But we have beautiful stained glass windows that are also going to teach you. You can appreciate the beauty of the art. There's creativity that goes into the design and the construction of those. There's a corpus that hangs on the cross that's hand-carved. That's an artist did that. 
A craftsman and an artist did that. That's creativity and art and beauty. The altar is built in a specific way. That's beauty. The pyramids, you don't go and just, well, you know, I don't know, what are we going to put on the altar? Well, well, this bed sheet is white. We'll just throw that on the altar. I mean, you don't do that. We have beautiful pyramids. We have beautiful vestments because the beauty is something that matters because it is inspiring. Because all of these different facets in worship make the confession and reinforce the confession of what happens here and who God is and who you are and all of that. It isn't just about showing up into this gray drab room and saying, well, no, it's time to worship God because he told us you'd better worship, so we'd better worship because he's really big and we're really small and we're kind of afraid of him, so we just better do what he says. Mm. That's not really, you come to enjoy him. Uh, so this particular hymn was one that a lot of people didn't like. And the reason for that is because if you look at the text, even just the title, who's surveying the wondrous cross? I. Yeah, so in the English corpus of hymnody, this is really one of the first ones that includes the first person. That is a reflective hymn or what we would perhaps call a subjective hymn. Um, Lutherans often, sort of like the Calvinists, can be really staunch about a hymn can only ever be objective. It can only ever say something. And, and in that case, this is a really bad hymn because it's the voice of faith that says, when I survey this, this is what I feel, this is what it makes me think of. Now, there are, a lot of those hymns are bad, those subjective hymns are bad, but a lot of the objective hymns are bad too. So the best thing that the church can do is to incorporate a blend of all of that because of the expression of faith. Hymnody is didactic, so it teaches you, it serves to confess, but it also in its confession is the voice of faith, which often means that when God does something to you, there is a response. So much, much hymnody is the voice of faith's response to the Lord for the good that the Lord has done. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because there are a lot of hymns that we would call pietist hymns, which sort of fall into the same category of that, ooh, I don't know, because it's all about me, 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 and nothing's ever really about you. If there's ever one thing that you leave Bible class thinking, it should be, yes, it's not about me, it's about Christ for me. It's not about me, not about me. The whole perspective changes when it isn't about you. So then when you sing hymnody and it's all about my heart's a fire for you and I do this and I do that and I think this and I want this and then it's some, there's a little bit of a disconnect. But a nicely crafted hymn that expresses the joy of the Christian heart really isn't bad. So part of the duty of the church is to weigh those uh, to look at the hymns and say, okay, is this a true confession of the faith? Is this good? Is this a distraction? It, no, all right, let's do it because it's good. Um, but they didn't like it. Uh, many people didn't like this hymn. And they called it, I wrote this down, they called it nothing more than a hymn of mere human composure. Well, it doesn't say anything about God. All it says is something about you which isn't strictly speaking true because the hymn actually does say quite a bit about God, but it's more of a relational hymn than a 
catechism class hymn. Now, and there are a lot of Paul Gerhard hymns, and you've heard me talk about Paul Gerhard, um, one of the best hymn writers in the entire Lutheran corpus, much better than Luther. Luther wrote some pretty okay hymns, but Paul Gerhard was just so much better. Um, Luther gets the job done, and Paul Gerhard completes the task with joy and with artistry and poetry. Oh, this is really great. Uh, this is the analogy that I'll use between the two, Luther and uh, Gerhard. My grandmother and my aunt got the two boy golden retrievers from the same litter. And my aunt named hers Luther and my grandma named hers Calvin. <laughs> Which was kind of a joke. But Luther was, they were, they were from the same litter but they couldn't have been more different dogs. And they took them to dog training and they taught them how to do the agility course. And their favorite thing was to they would jump the little hurdle. And Luther was this, I mean, he was like picture-perfect show dog golden retriever. He would stand, and he had a big mane, and his fur would just flow silky smooth. And he was just, you know, his nose came to the perfect point. I mean, he's the guy you want to run behind because you know he's just going to slice that air in front of you. So streamlined. And Calvin then, on the other hand, was... <laughs> he was like a, a square dog with legs. <laughs> and so they would take him to this agility course and they'd go to hop over the... the uh, <laughs> yeah, they'd go to hop over the hurdle and Luther would... Oof, and he'd jump over and it would be like chick picture perfect because his fur would be and his legs would be up like this, just perfect. And then Calvin would truck up to it and he would just go <laughs> just <laughs> nothing fancy. And that's kind of the difference between Luther and Gerhard is that Luther's gonna get the job done and his hymns are good, it gets the job done. But Gerhard comes in like the dog, the other dog, and just and it's just, <laughs> they both do it, but one has a little more style, all right? I don't even know why we're talking about that. None, none of this has anything to do with the hymn. Um, okay, this is the last thing I'll say. This was classified originally by Watts in his first little book of hymns as a communion hymn. Uh, so this was something that and, and by the way, this, this ought to change the way that you look at the text just a little bit uh, because this is a hymn that he wanted and intended to be sung after you had received the sacrament and were going back to your seat or sitting in your seat after having received it. This was a hymn that was supposed to be a meditation on uh, what Christ had done and what you had received. And of, it gets in a little bit in that sense into the realm of the do this in remembrance of me, it's not really the body and the blood, but you're remembering it, which is when I survey the wondrous cross. You can kind of see it, but it doesn't mean that we can't use it still because uh, you survey the wondrous cross every time you go to the altar. So in that sense, you're not only remembering in, 
and, and by remembering, I mean recollecting, because there's a difference between the word remember and the word recollect. Remembrance brings forth a reality. Recollecting just recalls something that had happened. Recollection is a memory. Remembrance is a reality. When the Lord remembers his promises, he's not recollecting them as if he had, oh, no, that's right, I did say I would do that for you. Oh, whoops, sorry, it's been 400 years, oh my. It's when he remembers his promises, that's when his promises come to fruition. So it always says, the Lord remembered his promise and delivered Israel. So remembrance is the fulfillment of an act and, the, and bringing about a reality. So do this in remembrance of me or unto the remembrance of me is the reality of, hey, this is me, and I said that this is my body and my blood, and every time that this is done in, in the remembrance, it is bringing the reality back. But anyway, so this was supposed to be a communion hymn um, because you would receive the, the body and the blood and then go back and think, oh yes, yes, all of this really good. Uh, this is what Christ did for me. But it has really kind of fallen away from being a communion hymn and is used typically now just as a Lent hymn or even as an Easter hymn. Often it, it can be an Easter hymn uh, as well. You know, it says Lent in the hymnal, but eh, those categories are arbitrary. Uh, you'll notice we sing a lot of hymns that are out of season because it's about the text, not about the category. So anyway... Uh, the tune, this tune, uh, Rocking Him, was composed by uh, a fellow who was um, Edward, Edward Miller, I think. But the, the cool thing about him is he ran away from home because his dad was a stonemason and he didn't want to be a stonemason. He wanted to be a, uh, a musician, sort of like that elf from... Um, the old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special. He runs away from Santa's workshop because he wants to be a dentist. Well, he runs away because I don't want to be a stonemason, I want to be a musician. So he runs away and he becomes a flautist and he actually was the flautist in George Frederick Handel's orchestra. So there's just an, another little fun fact. I just think that that's really kind of cool. Uh, and then he wrote this tune that is associated with this text. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm going to sing the first stanza just so you hear the melody, and then we'll all just sing the rest of the hymn. We have, we have time to sing the whole hymn, so we will. Okay, I'll sing the first stanza. You all come in on stanza two. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Very English, okay. Yes. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, 
I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did such love and sorrow meet? O'er thorns compose so rich a crown. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a tribute far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We'll see you at the altar.